This is the Dallas Morning News. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm food editor Aaron Bookie, and I host our food podcast at the Dallas Morning News called Eat, Drink, DFW. Each week, we're dropping a segment of the show right here in this feed. If you want to hear the full show and make sure you never miss an episode, then just search for Eat, Drink, DFW wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links for it at dallasnews.com slash listen. Happy eating. Welcome back, everyone. Be sure to go to dallasnews.com slash food after this for information on our show and lots of food and drink stories. And you can always share your thoughts with us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. Later on, we'll be talking about traditional foods and dishes for Lent. But right now I'm joined by food writers Sarah Blaskovich, Claire Baller, and Imelda Garcia to talk about trending restaurant news. So Claire, you had a fascinating story this week about a restaurant boom in downtown Richardson and how the city is really offering some creative incentives to actually draw restaurants to the city. So first of all, this story came about after I wrote two stories of new restaurant openings in Richardson. I was curious about what was driving this restaurant growth. And what I found is that the city of Richardson has tediously worked for decades to reinvent itself and create a restaurant scene that is competitive with other parts of North Texas. So they established what they call the core district um, and they rezoned this area of the city to be an entertainment district. And it's made up of five sub districts, which includes like downtown and Chinatown. And it's an area where they're working to attract restaurants and turn it into a hub in the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been slow going because the city has a lot of aging infrastructure and buildings and they're working to update those bit by bit. And they're doing that by offering a building modernization program. Uh, And this is a program where existing and incoming businesses can apply for grants through the city to receive funding for interior and exterior building improvements. It functions as a way for the city to incrementally update those outdated buildings while aiding with renovation costs. So if you are taking an old building in Richardson that you want to move into and open a restaurant in and it is outdated and doesn't have things like a grease hood vent, right? Those things can cost $60,000. That's just one part of the renovation, right? And that's a huge undertaking. Well, it's in the city's best interest to help fund that because they want restaurants here. They want these buildings to be restaurants going forward. So they are offering great incentive programs to finance a lot of that. And what has happened as a result of that is restaurants are starting to move in. Mm-hmm. So Partenope is a restaurant in downtown Dallas, but they're opening a second location in Richardson. They're joining restaurants like Monkey King Noodle Company and Greenville Avenue Pizza Company. And they're really being drawn there because of the fact that it is a newly exciting, redeveloped part of the Metroplex. The whole building modernization thing, I don't think I've heard about that with other cities. I don't know of anything quite like it, at least not in Dallas. You know, what I did hear very clearly and very loudly from some people in this story was that Dallas is not an easy place to open businesses, but specifically restaurants. There's just a lot of holdups that happen, like getting certificates and such. 
the people who I've talked to who are working on opening businesses in Richardson have said that it has been much faster and much easier than their experience in Dallas. Richardson is is focusing on restaurants, right? Yeah, they see that as a foundational part of creating a walkable, desirable city. I mean, this is including major street improvements, sidewalk improvements, multifamily housing to create some more density in the area. But their belief is without the restaurant aspect of it, you can't quite drum up that energy, which I think is definitely true. And there's a big demand for this within the Richardson community. I mean, this is a part of the Dallas area that has grown significantly in population. And there hasn't been that many options for places to go. A lot of people have always gone to Dallas or other surrounding cities for going out. However, I do want to say that Richardson, though, has had a very noteworthy restaurant scene even before all of this effort from the city of Richardson to get new restaurants. It's one of the most diverse food scenes that exists in North Texas. And there are restaurants that have been there for a long time and that represent so many different cultural backgrounds. It's just an exciting time to build on that foundation that's already existed in Richardson and now build better infrastructure around it. It's fascinating. I mean, you wonder how a place becomes a restaurant hotspot. Well, you can look at Richardson and kind of watch it happen in real time. Speaking of those incentives and um, some of the older restaurants, they can benefit from those too, Definitely. Right? The Definitely. modernization and the extra parking. You even talked to the owner of Kieran Court, mm-hmm. who's been there for a really long time. He said that the restaurant will need some updating in the next few years, and he plans to work with the city and use that program. I mean, he spoke super positively about Richardson and working with the city as a restaurant owner, that it's always been an easy collaboration between the two. And that's good to hear. You know, we want people like him and businesses like his to survive and to be supported in an environment where a lot of new development is happening. That's great. And so kind of on the flip side of building actually brick and mortar infrastructure, Sarah, you've been covering a lot of ghost kitchens, which people are very confused about because there are so many different names for them. Yes. Cloud kitchens, digital kitchens. These are generally just commercial kitchens where food is made from lots of different companies. And you may never want or need to know where that place is. Like an invisible kitchen. Yes. And for anybody who's literal, it's a real kitchen, you know? <laughs> yes. But um, it's not actually a, go- a real ghost. equipment. <laughs> it's not like they're run by robots or anything. But yeah. These are, these are kitchens tucked away in an area, sometimes considered to be a lower rent area where you can get a bigger kitchen and then produce in large quantity burgers and dumplings and soup and cheesecake and all kinds of other food in the same place by the same cooks. We started talking about ghost kitchens during the pandemic because, first of all, we saw a lot of restaurants closing. But second, we had a deep desire to be delivered to. Right. And so the upside of a ghost kitchen is that if there's one near-ish to your house, you can have pierogies and your husband can have a Nashville hot chicken sandwich. Your children can have French fries with three different kinds of dippers. And they all arrive on your doorstep lukewarm. If we're being realistic, because it might have ridden in a car or steamed in the styrofoam thing that it was put in for 15 minutes. But we're seeing more and more that people of all ages are utilizing these ghost kitchens by Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub and other third party delivery services. And also some restaurants are moving to ghost kitchens. And a perfect example is Urban Taco. It opened in Mockingbird Station 16 years ago, moved from a small storefront to a little bit bigger storefront and a couple of weeks ago closed off. Together. The owner also had an urban taco in Uptown 
one in San Antonio and one in an airport. So none of those are there anymore, but he opened and is currently operating a ghost kitchen called Umi. I think he calls it a digital kitchen, Mm -hmm. but just so we all know, it's about the same thing. Right. So you can still get Urban Tacos Tacos. You can order them on an app and have them delivered to your home, or I believe you can go and get carry out. So you recently did a poll on Twitter, Sarah, sort of asking people if they liked getting food from ghost kitchens. Yes, this is a, an unscientific poll. For a couple of hours, I asked people a question and 159 people voted. So, you know, don't tell the journal of whatever food science, yada, yada. But I think this is interesting. I said, what do diners think about, quote, digital kitchens? 15.7% said they would still order from a place that used to be a restaurant and is now a digital kitchen. 49.7%, call it 50%. Yeah. Half of the people who voted said no. Oh, wow. You moved to a digital kitchen, I'm not interested anymore. And 34.6% said, what is this again? <laughs> so we have a lot of confusion about what ghost kitchens are. And there was always going to be confusion with a concept that is almost invisible. I've also noticed the quality. It's very hit or miss. One question I asked about that, because there's also a ghost kitchen inside a Walmart in North Plano. Right. And it, right when you walk in the door on the grocery side of the Walmart to your left, there are two big TV screens where you can touch your order and you can get a wide variety of foods from quite literally cuisines from all over the world. Now, how do we know that those pierogies are made in the way that the guy who started the pierogi business prefers? How do we know that they're cooking the burger in the way that this national or international burger company that has agreed to have his burgers cooked here? How do we know that they're doing them right? And so they answered this question. The answer is that there's a lot of training with their chefs. And so they've had to go through a dozen different trainings. You get a new bow company, you get a new burger place, you get a new chicken place. And so a new trainer comes to Plano, Texas and talks to those chefs about how to make this food. But then what happens if that chef leaves or a couple of those chefs leave? Six months later, whole new kitchen. Are you sending new trainers? It depends case to case. So maybe one brand is more authentic maybe better made than another. And I don't think there's a good way for a diner to know that in advance. I want to know if the prices are going down because I mean... Imelda, no, they are not. (laughs) When grocery prices became inflated, we saw food at every level, you know, food trucks, restaurants, ghost kitchen, everything, they had to raise their prices. And that delivery companies work in all these different fees. So there's a service fee and there's tax and you can tip and you should because it's this person's job to drive this food to you, but you do have to pay for that. And then they also take a cut from the company if they're third party delivering. Now that model is slightly different than the ghost kitchen model, I believe in terms of how money is shared or not shared. But Mm. the short answer, Imelda, is that no, these places are not getting less expensive as we have more of them. I think it's just expensive to have food delivered to your house. Yeah, and it's getting even more expensive. I've noticed um, I don't do as much DoorDash anymore, but the last few times I've done it, you can pay extra if you want it delivered straight to you so that the driver doesn't make multiple stops before he gets to you. So if you want your food less cold, you can pay extra. (laughs) Right. Otherwise, that driver is going to make other stops before Mm -hmm. they get to your house. Never mind. I'll just get in my car. Go get it. So one thing about ghost kitchens, I think, because we it's easy to point out the faults, is that it has created a different kind of restaurant business model that w- either wasn't popular or in many places didn't exist. And so as a person who studies and gets to talk to people about the business of food, it's very fascinating. I think some people will make some money doing this, but I, I think all of us are right that it's a less than perfect model. Yeah, we recently had sandwiches delivered to the office from a ghost kitchen concept. 
the order was wrong in many ways and the sandwiches did not look like the picture, which, you know, is expected, but they like really didn't look like what we thought we were ordering and we're missing like a significant number of ingredients. Sarah, this goes back to what you were saying, like, does this restaurant concept know that this ghost kitchen is not making their sandwiches with the quality that they intended? They probably wouldn't be thrilled about that. You know, the Walmart ghost kitchen is one good example. They are new and really excited about the food that they're making. And so it seems like there's plenty of oversight there. Once you run a ghost kitchen for a little while, do you get more lax? Do you forget the training? Do you hire a couple of new people who weren't there for the first time? I think I think those are all really realistic questions to ask. I yeah. think people are going to be picky as they should be with how expensive things are. If you order a sandwich from a ghost kitchen like this and it comes sad and missing a lot of things, you're probably not going to do that again. I don't think we're going to do that one sandwich shop again. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. Sorry, guys. That was an Aaron order that went terribly <laughs> wrong. I think I asked you to do it though, Aaron. They also dropped it off at the wrong place and I was running around to go find it. I think this is a good opportunity for an entrepreneur if they want like to be a mystery shopper. That oh. would be great because that way the quality will be better, right? You mean like place orders and see what's actually going that's, on? It's like Undercover Boss. Wasn't that like a, a TV correct. show? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, Sarah, you've done that a lot. You're like, I'm going to order this and see what this is like. Uh, once a week at least, I order something from a place just to see after I wrote a news story about it, if they're doing what they said they were going to do. Because there are lots of places I write about that either aren't open yet or aren't ready to serve yet. And I do feel, even though my opinion is rarely part of the news story, it is important when somebody on Twitter comes to me later and says, well, hey, how was that sandwich? Well, the first time I wasn't eating there because the kitchen was still under construction, but now I've actually eaten the sandwich. Let me tell you about it. But that's one of those disconnects with this job that I don't think a lot of people understand. It's like the four of us are not sitting around as restaurant critics. Mm -hmm. We're food journalists. So it isn't always important what we think about a business. It's the facts of the place. But what real people in the universe want to know is like, did you go to the steakhouse and how was the steak? Yeah, exactly. I have a question. Uh -huh. uh, how can we know if the restaurant that is in DoorDash and any other service, how can we know if those come from a ghost kitchen I don't think you will. Yeah. I sometimes, because I'll see, just for research as a food journalist, like I'll see stuff on DoorDash and I'm like, what is that place? Mm -hmm. And so then I'll go Google it on the Google Maps. And if there's not a restaurant there, it's usually like something else. And you'll see like a lot of places are there. You know, you're like, oh, that's a ghost kitchen. So I think yeah. if you just Google map it and look, you can see where actually it's coming from. Also, a lot of times the food is coming to you from the design district. It's a ghost kitchen. There's a lot of ghost kitchens over there. We're like in West Dallas, too. I think we're just like a few steps away from having like the little thing in your house where you push in what you want to order, you know, like from the Jetsons or something. <laughs> just like spaghetti. And then all of a sudden there's spaghetti. Like I feel like it's going to come by drone like through a chimney people in my generation spy kids okay there, sorry yeah there was <laughs> there's like this scene where they like have this microwave and it can like make any meal and it was like absolute food dream my daughter was telling me how starbucks would deliver drinks on the ut campus by little tiny robots these little <laughs> robots would roll through with the drinks but they had to stop doing it because the students kept kicking them over <laughs> of course wow. they did the <sighs> i do love that those little delivery robots like i always see videos of them in la they always look so polite. Like they stand and- They're kind of cute. They, they are cute. They stand and wait and like, you know, look both ways like five, six, seven times before they go. 
Slightly related to this conversation, I have a family member who I saw last week. She's a junior in high school, and she mentioned that she doesn't like the food at school very much. And so she door dashes food to her small town, small town high school. I was like, tell me everything. <laughs> so inside her high school, there is a table designated for all these kids DoorDash items. Wow. I hopped in my Wayback Machine and was like, I wonder what year they put out that table. Because it can't have been there that long. How long ha- mm-hmm. have 17 year olds been able to ask someone to bring them food with a credit card inside their phone? Like yeah. I would have done that when I was 17 as well, but that's not how the world worked then. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, she said like lots of us do it and it's expensive. So they can't do it every day. You know, sometimes you got to eat the bad pizza from high school. But I'm just like, how has this world changed that you can do that during pre-cal? That's wow. And so this time of year is a big holiday time of year with Ramadan coming up this week, Passover coming in April, and Christians around the world are currently observing Lent, which I am always very bad about. But Imelda, you've already written like a few stories about some Lenten foods. What are some of your favorites? Yeah, well, I went to several Mexican restaurants looking for Lenten food, Uh and I found several that offer some traditional dishes from Fridays, which is when it's customary not to eat meat in the Catholic tradition. So I found that they sell these tortitas de camarón, which is kind of a dried shrimp patties. Mm -hmm. And they offer also seafood, fish, nopalitos with eggs. And I found people, families that go on Fridays looking for those dishes. The origins of this food go back to the 16th and 17th centuries when Mexico was not yet Mexico, but was in New Spain, Mm -hmm. La Nueva España. Most of Latin America was a colony of Spain. So when they came to the New World, those foods that came from Spain combined with other foods that were indigenous, they created a lot of these dishes that we still eat today. One of the most popular dishes of this season is the capirotada. This is a dessert that is kind of a bread pudding with sugar or piloncillo, and you can make it with water or milk. I'm sure many of our listeners like seeing their mothers or their abuelitas cooking this dish. It's very traditional in this time of the year. And so, Sarah, you're intrigued by the caparatata, right? Imelda, I made it yesterday. Oh, my God. At my house. (laughs) Because of you, I just, I love bread pudding, and I'd never made this dish. And it also has sprinkles on the top, and I have two little girls. So I was like, this can be (laughs) a family thing that we do after church on Sunday. Yeah. And they're going to be very excited about it. But it has cheese in it. Yeah. So it's like the cheese mixed with that brown sugary milk, cinnamon, clove, broth that you've cooked over the stove and you pour it over the bread and then comes the cheese and then you do it all over again. I did it just like your recipe called for. I don't love raisins in a thing. So I did peanuts, which is also very cool. Anyway, I thought it was very fun. And my kids thought it was a blast to have the sprinkles on it. And this might be something we make again. And did you like it? I did like it and I was going to bring it in and then I got nervous and I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And so what kind of cheese do you use? You can use fresh cheese. I mean, traditional Mexican fresh cheese. So I think her recipe calls for cotija and I did a little bit of searching around to see. And I will say I did almost all of this from what I had in my house. I didn't have any cotija and many recipes said you could use whatever you've got. We have a pizza oven, so we happen to have mozzarella. And it said mozzarella was cool. I wasn't going to throw like an Italian cheese in a Mexican dish uh, without permission. But the internet said, sure, use that. And it, it just you just need a melty cheese. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not a cheese forward dish. It just like gels it all together. Yeah. And is that something you ate growing up? Yeah. Uh, my mother every year prepared it for us. And you know what? Each ingredient has a meaning. 
it's all a religious significance for the people. I don't know. It's richer for me to know that. That's so cool. I loved the cloves in that sweet liquid. You have to bring us some. I know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, like, I now want, I want it, but I want you to love it. <laughs> I got nervous that I was trying to, you know, I was trying to make a dish that you loved growing up, and I didn't know if I did it right, so I didn't. No, bring no, it. I will love it because you made it. <laughs> oh, yes. And that's all the time we have for Eat Drink DFW this week. Thank you all for joining, and I hope we've made you hungry for more. We also want to hear from you, so share your food thoughts, favorite restaurants, or tasty recipes with us at eatdrink@dallasnews.com. The show is produced by Julie Fisk. To stay up to date on every episode of this show and hear more from our newsroom, just follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate the show and give us a good review. Find links to everything we do at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find a special membership offer there just for listeners. For the news, I'm Aaron Bookie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Eat, Drink, DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.